0: This is Referee's World with Darren Cullum
1: and Richard Mellin. Hello again and welcome to the Referee's World podcast, the monthly audio magazine which offers education and training for football referees of all levels. My name's Darren Cullum, I'm a Level 5 referee affiliated with Somerset FA, and this is my mentor, the man in my life, my hero, Rich Mellon, who's got so many distinguished titles to his name, I just can't remember them because I haven't got them written down this time, Rich.
0: Hello Darren, thanks very much for that quick introduction.
1: Listen, we need to do a quick introduction on this particular episode because we've got a very special guest that we've been waiting to speak to for quite some considerable time. Uh, Work, commitments and all obviously take a priority over us, but we'd just like to welcome to the Referees World podcast for the first time, Howard. Web,
2: hello. Hi, Darren. How are you? Good afternoon. Good evening. Yeah, very good. Thank you.
1: Good. Well, listen. um, First of all, thank you very much for uh, taking time out to uh, join us on the podcast. It's great to at last get you here, and I know you're busy. Um, but uh, uh, we've, got, we've got him, Rich. We've got him. Absolutely. So we, got the special, we got the special man. Yeah. So, um, listen, Howard, first of all, I'd just like to uh, start by talking about your background in refereeing, first of all. When did you first start? When did you decide you wanted to become a referee? Or were you playing football beforehand, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, uh, of course. Um, I guess like most kids, uh, the ages so are like 9, 10, 11, I wanted to be a professional footballer. And uh, crazily enough, I thought I was good enough as well looking back, but <laughs> actually, when I do look back, I realize that I was miles away. And uh, most, of, I, it, most just,
1: of us go through that, mate.
2: <laughs> we do, yeah, yeah. You get to the stage and you, you think it's just not gonna happen, and uh, and that that sort of like realization struck me at the age of about 14, 15, or something like that, and. I'd always had a, an interesting referee, I guess, through my dad, because when he finished playing locally, he sort of like managed the local team. Um, quite often, you know, there were shorter referees, so either one wouldn't be appointed to his team's games or the referee might not turn up. So he would step in. He's quite a larger than life character with a big booming voice, and he used to quite like the idea of being in charge. So he would take take the game and the ref and got into it, decided to become a qualified ref, and got really heavily involved. So even as a kid, I'd sort of like. Got a knowledge of, of officiating, but never had an ambition to, to really take it up myself until I realised I wasn't being be a good enough player. And uh, <laughs> my dad said, Have you thought about doing a bit of refereeing yourself? And at first I was reluctant, um, but what, what appealed to me, I guess, it was the late 80s, it was like 1989 it was, and I remember thinking that it might be quite interesting or different to have some younger people refereeing because mm. all referees that I saw were older guys I, mean, I was were, going
1: to say who were, when you were sort of at that age who were the referees that were um, uh, in charge back then that you would well, be you looking know, up to
2: as, as, as a, I guess I wouldn't look up to anybody as a ref. if I'm honest I'd look up to the players but I, I didn't really pay attention to the referees mm. at the highest level of course the people at that time were people like George Courtney and Keith Hackett those sort of people who are obviously got to know well since and the guys i look look up to now but at the time i didn't really pay that much attention Mm. to the rest but of course those were the the big names at the time and and those are the guys i've actually learned so much from subsequently um and and of course when you first start refereeing you do look to to the guys that are doing those games And, and undoubtedly you know george courtney was somebody that i used to look to and i used to think wow this guy has got a lot of presence on the field he's got a lot of authority um and um you know I, I did learn a lot from him after I made it to, to the football league and the Premier League because he was assessing at that time. And uh, you know, I, I used to sometimes I'd hate him assessing me because he would always be really truthful. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, "Well, George, what are you talking about?" But then when I look back later, everything that he said mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. It really did. So uh, yeah, um, there were some big names around, and, and didn't expect to make it anywhere near the level that they got to. I mean, I just did local local football, kids football, um, alongside playing. So. For example, I'd play on a Sunday morning. I'd rest on a on a Sunday afternoon, and on a on a Saturday, I'd go and watch football. I'd go and watch my local professional is Rotherham United. So I'd go and watch them home and away all over the country. Um, and I oh, you, the- you were proper dedicated then. Uh, I was. I was, Yeah, season ticket holder. Went to about seventy five grounds all, all over the country. You know, down as far as Exeter in the southwest, wow. Gillingham in the southeast. You know, on the on the supporters' bus, and uh, you know, and uh, we stand on the terraces shouting at the ref as all the fans do. Um, you must you uh, must
1: have somewhere tucked away in a dark room some pictures of you on the bus singing and howling after a win, and uh, with all your mates and stuff.
2: Yeah, oh uh, yeah, yeah, I've got some great memories. I really have. I mean, I mean, well, but after I said that, watching football in the eighties wasn't that pleasant. I mean, I can remember going yeah. going to away grounds as a, as, a, as a teenager and getting, you know, shepherded off the bus by the police into the ground, and you're standing behind bars and cages and that sort of thing. And it, you know, it wasn't. You didn't get treated well as a as a, as a traveling football fan. But uh, you know, football does something to you. It's all like it grabs you and hooks you, and mm. it. Um, it doesn't let, let let you go, sort of thing, and and I was just so passionate about football. In, in any guys watching, playing, and and then officiating, and then the decision had to be made, guys, as to what do I do? You know, do I continue mixing these three things—the playing, the watching, and the and the officiating—or or, or, you know, do, or do I get serious about my officiating? And you know, I realised that I'd got an opportunity to get to a good level as a ref, and therefore the first thing that went was the. With well, the watching, um, I decided to, uh, to referee on a Saturday because in those days, the only way you could progress is by refereeing Saturday football. Sunday football really was just recreational. Um, and then I realised you know, it's OK playing. I enjoyed playing for the local uh, Sunday League team that I was a part of, but I realised that you know, there wasn't a future in that either and that you know, I was running the risk of injury. By by this time, I'd become a Class 1 um, which would be equivalent of level five now. And I could see opportunities to make it into the non-league scene and, uh, and uh, decided to, to you know, put all my eggs in one basket and focused on the refereeing. And I, I'd, I'd do four games a week and I'd, I'd referee two on a Saturday, two on a Sunday. Now, I really think there's some benefits in doing as many games as you can when you're at that stage of you know, development. You're learning from every decision, you're learning from every single reaction from a player, um, the way you feel about a decision yourself, even if you don't realise that you know, subconsciously you're learning all the time how to conduct yourself and, and, and you get feedback all the time. And, um, the one more all, one do, of the things know. that
1: we often say and talk about quite a lot on the podcast is the fact that you shouldn't really take for granted every game. You're only as good as your last game and every game is a whole new experience. So uh, what you've just said is, is, you know, fairly true to the point in terms of the experiences you learn, so cram in as many games as possible.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, whilst your legs are still fresh and you're young enough to, to, to do it and to recover from games and, and what have you, uh, of course, you have to take care of yourself physically. But, you know, I, I was in my uh, you know, early 20s, you know, late teens, early 20s, and, and was able to cope with the physical demands. And, and you're right, absolutely, give everything to every game because, you know, that game at that time is the most important game in the world to, to the people taking part. So if you go in and just think, oh, let's do, do the bare minimum, you know, all you ever do is damage your reputation. Yeah. And, and the way you get to the top is by building your reputation locally, and then you build it a little bit wider. And people talk about you in circles saying, oh, this guy's a good guy, he's a good ref, or, or she's a good ref, and you know, and you get a good reputation that then precedes you because then as you turn up to a game, people have heard this name, they know that you're, you're decent, uh, mm-hmm. a decent guy who you know, um, does the game justice. They expect to see a good performance, and it's amazing how people see what they expect to see. And if they've heard that you, you know you, you you know you're not exactly somebody who takes it seriously, you don't give a hundred percent, or that you know you know don't pay respect to the people involved, they'll look for for like clues to support their prejudgment. Um, mm. So it's so important that you, you know you, you conduct yourself in the right way off the field, yeah. polite, respectful, give a hundred percent. You yeah. make mistakes, but, you know, that making mistakes will follow you through your entire career. It's all about how you handle situations and how you manage people. Um, and, you know, even if you're you know, not a better decision maker than the next person, you know, those other character traits will mean that you'll get a better ride, a better deal from, from the people that you're refereeing.
0: OK. Howard, it's Richard here. Um, hi, Rich. Hi. Um, quick question, going back to building a reputation. What type of player were you? Uh, <laughs> wait, wait! What position? Let's let's get that one sorted. I
2: was a defender. I uh, was just about to say oh. if I was
1: going to put my money down, I would say yeah. uh, I would say defender.
0: So you think you know how to tackle? Would, would that be a fair phrase? Yeah, I
2: probably. You know, I probably could. I mean, I, I wasn't. I was able to read the game fairly well. I was able to uh, move into a position where I could intercept a pass or I could make a decent time tackle. the The thing I wasn't very keen on, even for a big guy. I mean, I probably, I probably. I grew quite a lot when I was about fourteen, fifteen. I wasn't a particularly early developer, but I went from being one of the biggest guys in junior school to one of the smaller guys in the early part <laughs> of secondary school, to yeah. then becoming a big guy again. And you know, but for a big central defender or right-sided defender, I wasn't very good in the air. I didn't really like the physical aspects of the game, but I, you know, I'd prefer to time a tackle or sort of like come forward with the ball, and I could pick a pass out the best I could with my ability. Um, but I didn't particularly like the physical side of the game. I was I was respectful to the officials. I'll be honest. I wasn't I wasn't a poach turned gamekeeper.
0: You were a tackler um, rather than a yapper.
2: Yeah, I was. Yeah, you know, I'd, you'd have a little reaction, but I would always be able to control my emotions on the field. You know, I know some of these were difficult players. You know, but uh, I, I wouldn't say I fell into that category. I think I was somebody who was always. Always oh, pretty level-headed and, and respectful.
0: Just to confirm the record, did you ever get cautioned or dismissed? I was
2: just
1: about to ask that. You beat me to it. <laughs> uh,
2: no, no, I don't think I ever did. Can you believe it? And uh, maybe on one or two occasions, maybe I, I ought to have done. But uh, but you know, again, I think that you can uh, you can sometimes, through uh, having a good reputation for being a decent person, sometimes you might Absolutely. just might just think, oh well, he's a, he's a decent type. I'll uh, I'll not book him.
1: Okay. okay, so um, you, uh, uh, you 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 got your grades. You went up the ranks. What was your first league game? Tell us about that.
2: First league game. Well, first league game as an assistant three was in 1996. It was Burnley against Shrewsbury Town. That was um, that was lining to a guy from Scarborough, called Bill Burns, um, and that was so that was that was August 96, and that was six and a half years after taking my first ever game. So that's how long it took me to make it up to the football league line. Um, I then progressed onto the uh, middle of the the panel league, what is the national national league now, the national conference uh, in in ninety eight. Uh, at the same time as making it onto the Premier League line, which came as a bit of a surprise to me, really. But um, that, that was a, a really great grounding. Actually looking back, you know, there's two years that I spent running the line to some of the top referees in the country. I mean, I think I lined Graham Paul sixteen times and and a lot about how to handle yourself in those you know those real. High pressure situations and you know the, the scrutiny that's on the people at the Premier League level is huge and, and you learn a lot of how to deal with that um, and and two years later made it onto the Football League Middle or the, the national list of referees as it's called or was called and um, and my first ever game should have been on the twelfth of August two thousand uh, and it should have been a game between Shrewsbury sorry no between South End and Brighton and Hove Albion in what is now League Two. Um, but I couldn't make it because my wife was he- really heavily pregnant with our second child, who was now n- uh, nearly sixteen, Jack, um, and he-, he was overdue. And um, I didn't want to be so sort of, like a couple of hundred miles away from home, knowing that she could you know, be going into labour at mm-hmm. any time. So I spoke to the appointment secretary who at the time, was Jim Ashworth. Ashworth. Was, yeah, Jim Ashworth. Was, yeah. 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 Spoke to Jim and said, uh, "Jim, you know, tell, could I be excused, please?" and, and enough, I was, and Jack came along, he hung on for another four days, he came along on a <laughs> Thursday, uh, the following week, and um, and then I could do my game that Saturday, but a local derby between Darlington and Exeter,
1: <laughs> anyway, it wasn't a local
2: derby of course, but uh, for me, it was a massive game, and uh, yes, yeah, so I went up to Fetum's, at, uh, up in Darlington, and refereed a, a one-all match between Darlington and Exeter. And, uh, and I think, think it went OK. I mean, you know, my recollection's a little bit of a blur of that game. It was a massive, massive step I mean, yeah. to, to take charge of um, a football league game. Is, uh, for somebody who'd been around, you know, uh, the country watching football at that level and wishing wishing all that time I could be on the pitch, mainly as a player, I'll be honest. But, yeah. but you know, but just to be on there as a ref was... Hugely significant in my life, you know, because I, I realise just how much football matters to people. I realise how much it can it can really ruin your day, your weekend. It can, you know, impact upon upon your life hugely. Really, uh, your passion for football is there, and uh, yeah, so, so to be yeah, to be given responsibility of taking charge of a football league game was 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 a great feeling.
1: How did um, how did you? manage juggling your daytime job with all the games and everything? Because obviously being a police officer um, has shift work and that kind of thing, so it can it can sort of... It must have been quite a juggle for you.
2: Yeah, it was, it was. I mean, certainly um, as I was coming through the referee ranks, I had no idea where that journey would take me, so I didn't know that I would make it to the level where you could earn a living. So, of course, you have to maintain full-time uh-huh. employment. And, and I was a, a, sort of like an aspiring senior police officer. I mean, I, I wanted to get as far as I could. And uh, after seven years of being in the, the police in, in South Yorkshire as a PC in, in Doncaster, town centre, I was promoted to sergeant uh, and was moved to Sheffield City Centre um, at the same time as being promoted onto the, onto the footballing middle. So I would, because I had aspirations to become a, um, a high ranking police officer, I... I had to give you know, a lot of effort to that as well and make sure that I was working the shifts that I needed to work. And so I quite often do games off, off night shifts, for example. I'd work on a Friday night uh, in the city centre, finish at five or six in the morning, grab a couple of hours sleep, wow. then drive to Peterborough United or to Cambridge or wherever I might be at Blackpool, and take the game, referee the game, get back in the car, drive home, have a quick bite to eat, maybe a quick nap, and then get back to the police station for a ten o'clock start on the Saturday, which is a recipe for disaster. I mean, I'm not saying that's the best preparation. Of course, <laughs> it's not. But if I used leave all of the time, yeah. I, I'd never be at work. You know, yeah, so yeah. I had to. I had to do that. Yeah, I, I take I, t- I would take time off on Saturdays where I could, but um, of course, you know, well, I was simply didn't have enough leave to do that. So, uh, but you know, you find out who are the sympathetic supervisors. You find out the ones who have got a passion for football and the ones who you can lean on, and say, look, any chance of half a off a shift off or if I give you tickets for the game, you know, as my guest, can you, you know, can... Uh, I was going to say,
1: higher up the league you go, the more opportunity you've got to be able to repay them with things like tickets to big games and all that kind of things. So they probably... Exactly. And, the, and, yeah. and the fact that they were probably showing you that level of support, it was like a, a, a mutual thing. And for them, it would have been re- a real buzz for somebody um, like like yourself coming up through the ranks and starting to appear on all these big games. That would have been a good thing for that. That would have been a good yeah. thing for the police. They'd have yeah, hey, it. But-
2: they loved it. I mean, you know, they had a monthly magazine and quite often I a feature on that. And it, and how many times, you know, would people say, you know, um, South Yorkshire Police Officer Howard Webb taking charge of tonight's game between you know, Manchester City <laughs> yeah, nice and Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, I, I, you know, I, I didn't really do that much police work. After 2003, my police work really dropped off. And, you know, that was when I was made um, a member of the select group. And so, you know, I, I did a bit of ambassadorial work, did some community work, but... I've not really done any real policing since 2003, but, but still, you know, that, that association survived. And, and, yeah, you're right, you know, the chief constable was somebody I got to know quite well and, and was very, very supportive of the fact that I was representing this organisation all around the world.
1: Yeah. Did, did, did um, being a police officer help you a lot in your refereeing? That was my question. Sorry, sorry, Rich. I'll <laughs> let you ask because no, I've asked no, too many. No, because no, no. No, obviously, well, you know, it's... it, 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 it yeah.
0: Go No, Sorry. no. Oh, all right then, <laughs> thanks. Um, Howard, going back to the base, what pushed you into policing first of all? And then did policing help you t- to understand a little bit of refereeing? And did the two work in uh, uh, like a contra way? Did they v- uh, work vice versa as regards skill sets? Yeah, I thought you
2: might ask me that. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it, uh, what, what pushed me into it in the first place? Um, I, I don't know really. I always, I always saw it as... Um, it's quite an interesting sort of a, a job that might be that might be varied. I remember going into, into my school careers sort of like, uh, uh, meeting in the what is now the year eight or year nine or something, like it was third year back then yeah. uh, in secondary school, and, and I can you know, distinctly remember saying to the careers teacher, "What do I need to become a What do I need to become a What a, was Dad's remember?
0: profession, Howard?
2: He well, he was a coal miner for, for quite a long time after he left. Um, after he left school, a yeah. lot of people in this part of the world went down the coal mine and, and it was a well-paid profession. profession. Yeah. But of course it was dangerous and and uh, he, left, he left not long after we came around, me and my sisters, and, and he was working on the coal face and there was a, a roof collapse quite close to where he was working and, and one of his friends was killed and, and he came out of the mine that day and said he was never going to go back down because wow. he realised just how close he, he was to this mm. this disaster that could have you know, taken uh, his kid's father away. So... Um, so, yeah, so so he decided to, to go and do something else. He became, a, yeah. he became a, a, a van salesman and all sorts of things. But he, he always said to me, so, so, you know, I can remember when I was a kid, he, he said, you know, if you want an interesting job, think about becoming a policeman. And I also wasn't sure what else I might want to do. And what I found when I joined the police, I found that a lot of people fell into that category who, who had become police officers. They weren't quite sure what they wanted to do. Uh, and they ended up finding their way into this, this job, which I was proud to be a part of. I mean, you know, the police without getting political about things, the police seem to have had a bit of a battering in terms of, of support just lately, um, you know, in, in many, many respects. Yeah. But I was still very proud to be a part of that team okay. throughout my career and um, and enjoyed pretty much every day of it. I mean, there was some ups and downs, but mm. there were not many days where I didn't want to go into work when I was in the police. You know, it was, a, it was an interesting occupation. I got a lot of satisfaction from it as, as well. Um, uh, as for crossover, I mean, it's not without coincidence, is it, that there's quite a few guys who make it to the top of the football referee yeah. world that come from that background. You know, we've got Martin Atkinson now, we've got Chris Foy, Alan Wiley, you know, and many others as well that have, that have come through a policing background and you'll find that happens uh, uh, together with teaching as well, those sort of like professions where you're dealing with people day in, day out undoubtedly developing your skills that you can use on the pitch and a lot of that, a lot of that, um, A lot of that sort of um, management of conflict and and understanding the laws and making a decision, taking control of situations, staying calm, all those things, you know, do cross over from the field of play onto the street and vice versa, Mm -hmm. undoubtedly.
0: Okay. Um, Influences on your career... Um, obviously, your father had uh, an influence on it to start with. Um, as you came through the ranks, who who else had influences on your career, and what what was the biggest piece of advice any one influence uh, was offered to you?
2: Yeah, quite a few quite a few key pivotal figures in my career. You're right, my father would have been the key one yeah. for a long time at the very start. Um, and then, as I made it onto the onto the football league, I was assigned various coaches, and and coaches are. I think an important, play an important part in referee development. I mean, not only in terms of the technical development, but also that sort of like pastoral support that you get from a coach because, you know, for all the referees listening, you'll have times in your career where you really feel like packing in. You know, you'll have a bad couple of games on the bounce. You'll yeah. start to struggle for confidence. You'll go into a game expecting to make a mistake because you've had a few in the previous games. Yeah. And that's when you need people to put their arm around you and say, come on, this is pretty normal, listen, you know, just keep keep getting through it and fight your way through this period. And, and I had. Periods like that every single season, and and they were probably less obvious. Uh, the more experienced I became, it was less obvious that I was suffering. But you know, I still recognize periods of every single season where I would, you know, struggle for a bit of confidence, and, that, and that's quite normal. So coaches play a big part. So my first coach when I got onto the football league was a guy called Trevor Simpson from the, from from West Yorkshire, who yeah. uh, was who was he was a super coach. He really was. You know, he was upbeat. He was somebody who would uh, put your head back on the right way if you, if you started to lose lose, lose your direction. Um, and then I was handed over to Keith Hackett, who became my development coach. When, when it was recognised that I was possibly a potential for the Premier League, Keith had a group of, of referees, which included people like Mark Clattenburg as well, um, on that group. And, and he, he tried to turn us into Premier League referees. And, and Keith was, an, an, you know, it was a different style to, to, to Trevor, but Keith was somebody who would give you, give you a lot of belief in yourself. Um, make... To make you realise what was possible. Um and uh, I was really grateful for Keith for his involvement. In Try to tried
0: to turn you into premiership referees. Proof of the pudding. It worked. Yeah, it worked.
2: yeah. I mean yeah, yeah you know he had a good um, a good you know a good bunch of lads who he he helped push through. I think Peter Walton was in that same group yeah. as well that came through and um and just just to pay for that to, for that step up really. Um I made it onto the international panel um and when I did in two thousand and five I was assigned uh, an international coach in Hugh Dallas from from Scotland. Scotland and yeah. Hugh was Hugh was excellent. I mean, Hugh was somebody that I, I looked up to as one of the most successful British referees. Uh, he was fourth official in the 2002 World Cup final in Yokohama in Japan for Kalina. Um, and I'd seen him do loads of big games and, you know, both the old firm games and the European Cup games and, and always looked up to him. And, and it was an absolute delight to, to work with him. You know, we had a good relationship and uh, the... Um, he had the job of, of turning me from a Premier League referee into an international referee because there is quite a lot of different skill mm, sets yeah. required. And I went into my first, I went into my first European game in under under nineteen tournament in the western part of Spain on the back of probably doing thirty or forty Premier League games in two thousand and five. And I can remember the first game I refereed it, refereed it in my normal sort of a way and lots of interaction the players. And, and the the German observer was horrified by the, the way that I'd handled the game. And and it was. It was just—it a different type of management.
1: What, what I was going to say: what is the biggest difference? The single biggest difference between doing a Premiership game uh, and then going on to uh, a European game.
2: Well, the differences have definitely become become uh, smaller, down uh, undoubtedly. But you know, ten, twelve years ago, there were some significant differences. I mean, you'd have much more interaction with the players from a verbal communication point of view in England. You would you would allow the game. To, to flow a little bit more um, and when I say flow I mean if, if a referee sees a foul he's only got really a choice between penalising the foul or playing advantage that's the only option he's got if identifies a foul so it's not a case of turning a blind eye to a foul in the, in the Premier League it was a case of y- your threshold for what a foul was would be slightly different so some physical contact the players would expect it and allow it to happen here and they wouldn't expect a foul to be called here um overseas some small physical contact they would expect intervention by the ref so you know if and equally if you if you won the ball if you if you raised your foot and won the ball uh with the the bottom of your foot overseas even if you don't make contact with the opponent they expect the whistle to go for that they don't expect that to be allowed whereas if I penalised that here, people would react and say, what are you stopping the game for? There's mm-hmm. no, no offence. Um, if I didn't do it over there, the players would initially stop themselves, then realise there was no whistle and think, <laughs> hang on, this referee's out of tune with us. So to, you, you risk losing control because they're they'd take things into their own hands. So I had to adjust my recognition of a foul. I had to change it a little bit from what I was recognising as a foul here to what I recognised as a foul over there. Um, and it takes a bit of time and a bit of skill. I would say it's got closer over the years. There's less difference. Um, And in my experience, um, as I got my experience as an international referee, Champions League football was some of the easiest football to referee. Wow. in the world it really was apart from the pressure and the scrutiny yeah. I found Champions League much much easier than Premier League football to ref
1: how, how did you deal with the language barriers because obviously when you are abroad and you've got a, a whole myriad of languages and uh you know half the time you probably don't know what they're saying to you in their own language or anything do you what's what's,
2: what's that like yeah I, I, I do actually know quite a lot of uh, I, mean, I want not repeat them today of course but I do have quite a lot of swear words in, in different languages <laughs> <laughs> you, should, <laughs> but, uh, you, should, you
1: should launch your book swear words <laughs> in different languages for yeah, a football fans
2: it, yeah but uh, you, you, you just I mean first of all all the international referees have to speak English so there's a, there's a test every single every single course that, that, that we used to go on every tournament that we'd go to we would have an, all of us even the English speakers would have an English language test and then we'd also have a laws of the game test in English um, so you had to have a grasp of the knowledge of the laws in English um, most of the players I did tend to find could speak English if they wanted to so um, uh, Daniele De Rossi for example a player who played, plays for Roma and Italy You know, on the pitch he, I can remember thinking maybe he doesn't speak English and didn't really want to communicate verbally but you know, a few games later he had a a, a cast on his arm, and he wanted to to ask me before the game if he could play with the cast on. And he came into the dressing room and we spoke perfect English to <laughs> me. So you know, so so even the players who have not played in, in English speaking countries, because English is such a, a universal travel mm. language, um, they do most players will know some English. So that would be the universal language. But of course, body language is, is more important mm. than anything at all. And you know, and and even. Not saying a word might be the perfect thing to to communicate your message. I can mm-hmm. remember back in Euro two thousand and twelve in in Poland, we were watching some debriefs, and and uh, there was a referee from Turkey called Chunechikir, and um, this, in the debrief, the showed the showed Cunet just looking at a Ukrainian player without saying a word, but his eyes sent a million words yeah. to this player. Well, Kalina was, really, was
1: the master at that, wasn't he? Uh,
2: absolutely, he was, and uh, yeah, I mean, I. I I have got a job looking after the uh, the Saudi Arabian referees and I showed a bit of a montage of Kalima to these guys the other day because I want them to use more personality on the field and I want them to to to, to sort of change the approach from you know from maybe one of you know soft friendly approachable to being really quite stern but it's a it's a case of fluctuating from one to the other dependent on what's required at that time and and he was the master of doing that he could be absolutely smiley and, and friendly and approachable but then he could turn as required to make sure the players were left in, no, no doubt at all about who was in charge.
0: Howard, you mentioned about uh, nurturing a personality. For, for, for our listeners, uh, and there's, there's plenty of people around the world that listen to the podcast, how, how do you nurture a personality into refereeing? Um, can, you, can you relate to how you developed uh, the personality to refereeing, or is it something you can actually teach?
2: It's probably the hardest, the hardest thing I think to te- to teach because obviously a lot of the personality traits come from come from the person that you that you naturally naturally are. But there are certain things that you can that you can learn. Um, hence the reason that a lot of the a lot of the input that I've been having with the guys that I've got um, supervision of at the moment is about that. It's about trying to trying to use the right body language. I mean, yeah. obviously you know yeah. you need to stay calm. You need to control of yourself you need to control your own emotions you need to use your own emotions in a, in a positive way you might need to do some acting on the field as well you know you might need to show a certain emotion even if you don't feel that emotion too strongly but you know it's going to help control the situation. poker face
1: is what richard's just trying to describe to me at the moment
2: yeah exactly but even if, even if something's not you know even if I, I never used to get really too angry on the field, but I knew that I needed to, to maybe demonstrate on the piece. I wasn't, I wasn't happy, and there's no, there's no harm sometimes in telling the players that you, you know that you're not pleased with what they're doing at that time. Um, um, so I think I think getting some instruction on body language, looking at your own performances if you can on video. I used to learn an awful Good. lot about myself mm, by looking yeah. at how I looked from outside because you live in your own world inside your own head and and it's difficult to know how you're perceived unless you sort of get some way of looking at yourself performing so even if you've got no you know if you're not appointed to games that are televised live you know you can get some super HD um, video recorders nowadays small handheld things just get a friend to come along and Mm. film you taking control of a game and then watch it back and and you'll learn so much about the way that you're perceived by others Um, and like I said earlier, there's, particularly for the guys at the top level, there's not a lot of difference between the decision-making quality of all the guys who, who work at the high level, or, or at any level, at the level that you're at. The people at that level will make similar type of decisions, but it's all about how you sell the decisions and how people receive those decisions as to whether or not you can control the game.
0: Uh, Howard, let's let's go towards some of the tournaments that you've refereed and uh, the preparation that you have to uh, put into it, um, personally, collectively, uh, and everything that comes with it. I mean, we we've briefly mentioned the um, the cultures, the, uh, the cultural differences in refereeing, but when you go to a tournament, uh, what sort of preparation and uh, what setups are actually going on? Let's let's go back to that famous two thousand and ten competition for you.
2: Well. The- the preparation starts well in advance of the actual tournament itself. For example, for the 2010 World Cup, we were part of the shortlist going as far back as 2007. In fact, I was selected, together with Mike, Malarkey and Darren Cam, to, to be involved in the under-20 FIFA World Cup finals in Canada in the summer of 2007. and the, the first seminar of that particular tournament, uh, before the first game, uh, was opened up with the words, "Gentlemen, welcome to the to the roads to 2010 World Cup, South Africa." So, you know that was that, that, that was that thought. Yeah, that's three, a long three way, years way. away. That's three years away. You know, mm, and they were, saying, yeah. they, they were saying, look, you know, this is the opportunity to start your journey to the World Cup in South Africa. And uh, and sure enough, you know, the that in the autumn of 2007, a shortlist was announced, and we were on that shortlist of fifty-something referee teams, and. Uh, I remember, you know, we went all around the world on on courses and, and seminars and, and other tournaments yeah. just to try to gain that consistency amongst ourselves.
0: At, because, at that time uh, in 2007, how did you yeah. start dreaming? Did you start dreaming because you'd gone to that Canadian tournament? Did you start dreaming about 2010? Was that possible?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you what, I, I, yeah, a little bit. I, I mean, I, you know, when, when those words were spoken, I I'd not, obviously you know the World Cup's coming up, but equally you know that... Uh, you know, you know that there's other people who are you know, hoping to go to that tournament. Yeah, you, you, you imagine an English referee will be there. You, there's no guarantees. I mean, for example, there was no French referee at the last at the last World Cup in Brazil. So even a big football nation doesn't yeah. have a guaranteed place. But, yeah. but you know, English referees traditionally quite strong and. I, I would have expected somebody to be there, but you know, there were other people who, who potentially could have been selected ahead of ahead of me, of course. And and but you do, you think, you know, maybe that is a possibility. Uh what what I did get, I got the I got the bug for tournaments. I mean mm-hmm. two thousand seven FIFA under twenty World Cup in Canada was a, a massive highlight of, of, of myself, Darren and Mike. I mean we had a, a great time there. We did five games. We did the opening game. We did the semi-final. It we went like a dream. We just loved every moment of it, and and it absolutely whetted the appetite for for being involved in, in tournament football. And uh, and you know, and, and, and it was a great insight into what a real World Cup would be like. It was it was top level football but without the acute pressure of being at a World Cup. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. And I guess you know many others who went to that tournament felt the same, and they couldn't all make it, but quite a few of us did. It was quite a nice little cohort at the time. It was my, my peers from that period were, were a strong and close knit group.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, with the with the tournaments coming up, um, the selection for 2010. How did it, uh, we, we've already established how it began in 2007? But the final selection uh, from there on in, how did it unfold for you?
2: Well, so that list, that short list, was reduced down to something like about. Thirty-eight, I think. Originally, it was at fifty something, and then you know, I went to Euro two thousand and eight, um, and then went to the Confederations Cup in two thousand nine down in South Africa. Um, so things were going okay, and um, you know I I'd, I'd survived on the short list, and and then in the uh, early part of two thousand and ten, I received communication from FIFA that I had been successfully selected within the, the the twenty-nine referee teams that were going to be going to. To South Africa for the for the World Cup, and, and at that point they didn't actually announce which of those 29 would take charge of games and which ones would be fourth officials. They just listed 29 referee teams who would be going down to South Africa, and that's a great feeling. I mean, you know, it, it then goes public on various websites, and then people start sending messages of congratulations. Yeah, and it's at that time when your phone goes absolutely crazy, <laughs> and, uh, and it's uh, you know it's a, it was made up. It makes all those. All those miles of travelling, all those—I uh, mean, we had—we had, a, we had a, an online platform that we had to—we uh, had to go onto pretty much five times a week, looking at video clips, and we had to do laws of the game tests remotely. We had to do, we had to submit our own our own video clips and, and make comment on them. I can remember watching the Champions League final of 2009, um, yeah. which I think was refereed by Massimo Busaka. We had to sit and like do a. Do an online forum with all the other candidates, so we could talk about situations. So you know, it was a really thorough process. I mean, it wasn't something where they just you know suddenly said, "Okay, you can go." Yeah. You know, they, they, they were really detailed in terms of the preparation that we had, so months and months in advance. And and you know, they worked as hard. You know, it, it was it was a it was quite a quite a long process and quite an in-depth one. This is Referees World with
0: Darren Cullum and Richard Mellon.
1: And that's the end of part one with our exclusive interview with Howard Webb on the Referees World podcast. Rich, he's just an engaging character all Ab- around isn't he?
0: Absolutely enthralling. I'm I'm totally in awe of uh, his referee and T-shirt. I would like to have had ten percent of the experience mm. that he's had, and ten percent would uh, sort of make me a very happy man. And I would just sit down and chill
1: and what a nice bloke as well
0: absolutely yeah i mean um i've been been fortunate to be at meetings uh w- with howard he's he's very engaging as you say he's he, he's willing to sit back mm-hmm. uh and listen because that's that's a skill in itself uh he he then comes in with contributions of uh development where you can enhance a performance and 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 the ideas and the experience of of him are just absolutely colossal uh and Nobody, but nobody, cannot fail to learn from, from listening
1: to Howard. Absolutely. And the interview is in two parts. You've just heard the first part. When we set out to do this, I think we were, um, we were, we were counting on getting about 45 minutes out of him. Maybe yeah, Half an hour, 45 max. minutes max. Yeah, okay. max. And uh, it didn't turn out that way. It went on and on. So we've had to make the interview into, into two bits. So it's a bit more manageable, but it's definitely worth listening. And part two is coming up real soon here on the Referees World podcast.